This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am joined by the show's co-host and producer and my friend on and off the air, Joe Armstrong. Joe, we've got a legal update. What are we going to talk about? Hello, Jessica. Another busy week in law and politics. Today, we are going to talk about a pair of significant rulings by federal district court judges. One involves the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and the other involves pushback on a Florida suppressive voting law. So let's start with California, which is the first of our topics. Now, that's where a decision by District Court Judge David Carter addresses whether the January 6th committee can obtain documents from former Chapman Law School Dean John Eastman. You may remember that Eastman briefly acted as Trump's legal and political counselor around the time of the election. Now, according to Politico, Eastman was recruited to Trump World about two months before the 2020 election with the goal to, quote, begin preparing for anticipated post-election litigation, seeding the cloud, we might call that. Eastman wrote a two-page memo with the intent to persuade Mike Pence, vice president at the time, to circumvent the electoral process process outlined in the Constitution and toss the results of the 2020 election on the date of the certification of those results, which is January 6th, that very, very key date. So what did Carter conclude here? So he made a couple of really remarkable conclusions. And there was the overall narrative that he told, which is stunning, maybe not new information, but just stunning to see from a federal district court judge. And then there were the specific conclusions that he came to with respect to some emails that were at issue in this case, that were actually the issue in the particular ruling here. So on the big kind of, oh my gosh, why did this make headlines conclusion, Judge Carter says, Trump and Eastman, quote, launched a campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. And Joe, my response is, thank goodness, right? Thank goodness this is unprecedented in American history. Can you imagine a world in which this is entirely normal? And so everything about Judge Carter's 44-page opinion is really a very strong rebuke of Trump, Eastman, and others. And it should still be stunning, right? I don't want to live in a society where this is completely normal and where the actions surrounding 2021, the insurrection, are just viewed as, oh, another day in the neighborhood. So that was the high-level takeaway. He had some, again, really remarkable sentences there. One of them, this launching a campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. That one really stayed with me. It is indeed the stuff of banana republics. But let's go deeper on this and get into some more of the details. So, Jessica, you're the legal expert. What was the specific legal issue in this case? So the legal issues, as I mentioned before, were actually somewhat narrow in the sense that the question was whether or not the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th could obtain 111 emails that were sent to and from Eastman, again, the former dean of Chapman Law School, and he provided some political and legal counsel to Trump. So Carter went through methodically over dozens of pages. He goes through all of the arguments that Eastman makes for why he should not have to turn these emails over to the House Select Committee. And basically, the opinion is structured so that he says, 
is there a privilege? The two privileges at issue were the attorney-client privilege and the work-product privilege. And if there was a privilege, then is there an exception to that privilege, which still means, Eastman, you have to turn over these emails. And what Carter found here in terms of why the vast majority of the emails should be turned over to the House Select Committee really bears us going into the details of this opinion. So first, with respect to this question of whether Trump tried to obstruct an official proceeding, which of course is a crime and would fall within the crime fraud exception for the evidentiary privileges, Carter says, quote, it's more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. Carter highlights, and I think this line is so important, in our government, quote, leaders are elected, not installed. And he says, despite that, Trump tries to, quote, subvert this fundamental principle. So again, the first big conclusion here is that it's more likely than not that Trump tried to commit a crime and that that crime would be obstructing an official proceeding. Then the second and related big conclusion is that Carter says, again, given the evidence, it's more likely than not that Trump and Eastman dishonestly conspired, I'm quoting, to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. So he has two conclusions here where he says, I'm looking at the evidence and I think it's more likely than not that there are two crimes that were committed by Trump and Eastman. And again, it's not saying that Trump will be going to prison, but this is a federal district judge saying, I'm looking at evidence and there's a good faith belief that the former president of the United States committed not private crimes, but very public crimes crimes where he is attempting to really undermine our representative democracy. And Carter's decision has this line where he reminds us really how close we came to the abyss. And he says, if we fail to examine what happened, January 6th will repeat itself. Right. Prescient words, at least I hope not, that abyss may yet be out there somewhere, Jessica. So we know that Eastman has fought to keep these documents out of the public eye and out of investigations. So does Carter's ruling explain why that is? I think so. So both of the conclusions that I just talked about, both of those legal conclusions that Carter comes to where he says it's more likely than not that these two crimes were committed, mean that Trump not only acted unethically, immorally, and reprehensibly, but that according to a federal judge, it's Trump and at moments with an assist from Eastman who likely engaged in criminal behavior. So again, I think the fact that we have a federal judge saying it is more likely than not, John Eastman, that you engage in certain criminal behavior, that explains why he's so focused on keeping these emails that he sent and received private and out of the hands of the January 6th committee. Okay, so where is this going? Is there some kind of end game to this? Does this mean that Eastman may himself be indicted? And, and this is a very huge sentence, the implications of which are not lost in me, does it mean that a former president may wind up also getting indicted? So this is, of course, the big question. Does this mean that Trump, Eastman, or others will be on the receiving end of criminal indictments? And everybody's least favorite answer, maybe. Right. So I keep focusing on the fact here that Judge Carter says more likely than not that Trump 
Eastman engaged in criminal behavior. That's not the same as there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's what federal prosecutors would have to prove to move forward. So what does this mean? At this point, it means that we have Judge Carter saying, turn over these 100 emails. Eastman will almost certainly appeal this decision. We don't know how long the appeal of the decision will take. Let's assume at some point the January 6th committee gets these documents. At that point, the committee itself will look at the documents and make a decision as to whether or not to refer criminal charges to say to the Department of Justice, yes, you should charge Trump, Eastman, and or others. We know that a House committee, of course, does not itself have the power to bring criminal charges. So what this would mean is that the Department of Justice would then make an independent assessment as to whether or not it will move forward, given the information that the January 6th committee provides it and given information that it has on its own. There's an analogy here as to whether or not any charges would be brought for obstruction of a congressional proceeding. Joe, you and I talked about, for instance, the House Select Committee said to the Department of Justice, bring charges against Steve Bannon. He did not come in and talk to us, and he needed to. He ignored the subpoena. And it's the same process where the House Select Committee gets information, they make a determination, and then they send that determination to the Department of Justice. They'll make their own independent assessment. Right, and baseball is coming soon, Jessica. I know how much you love sports references. So the DOJ is trying to decide if they're going to step up to bat or not. We'll see what happens there. So Jessica, it also seems, we've talked about this many, many times before, it seems like all our episodes could just be titled Maybe. So given that, and given what you said before, what should we take away from these frankly remarkable conclusions. Should people who still support the former president be concerned about this whole story? Should people who are working to hold them accountable start considering maybe possibly pondering the chance that they might look into buying ice and champagne? And where do we go from here? So I think it makes complete sense that we're all so focused on will Trump be criminally indicted? And I completely understand that. And that's for a good reason. People should not be able to engage in what looks like this type of behavior that looks like it rises to the level of criminal activity without any sort of repercussions. Having said that, I also think we need to keep our eye on the ball of this could happen again. And there's no guarantee that next time we have the guardrails, some of the guardrails that save us. So if Mike Pence had decided, you know what, I'm going to go outside and beyond my constitutional authority and try and say, I'm not certifying this electoral count, we could be having a very different conversation right now. So we need to try and shore up the strength of our institutions. We need to try and make sure that things like the Electoral Count Act, that they work in a modern society. We need to, frankly, elect people where we're not hoping and praying that they don't act outside of their constitutional authority. So all of this is to say, yes, of course, we need to focus on whether or not criminal charges will be brought, but we also need to focus on ways so that we're not staring at the edge of a cliff again, just hoping that one person um, doesn't bring us or doesn't bring the unraveling of our constitutional democracy. 
All right, Jessica, thank you very much for that assessment. Let's move on to our next topic. And that's a big voting rights decision out of Florida from this week. If you're looking for something to prop up your car while you're changing your tire, look no further because this was a decision that spanned almost 300 pages. And if you stack them up, that's a jack. We know that it deals with voting rights, Jessica. So what happened here? So what happened here, a federal judge in Florida, as I wrote in an MSNBC column this week, clapped back against Florida's new restrictive election law. And more generally, as you said, in a very lengthy opinion spanning almost 300 pages, really clapped back against voter suppression laws in general, explaining why they threaten our representative democracy. And he said a couple of things here. Judge Mark Walker said a couple of things that I think are really worth repeating. And he said, not only is it a problem that Florida passed this law, and he talked about why it's a legal problem and frankly, why it's a larger problem as well. But he said, you know, Florida is not alone. And he talked about the fact that we see these restrictive voting laws really sweeping the nation. And we see a lot of judges blessing those laws saying, well, you know, it's okay under the federal voting rights act, or there's really nothing we can do about this constitutionally. So it's not just a narrow ruling based on what Florida did and why that's not okay. It's a broader ruling where you can really just feel viscerally his frustration at what is happening in other states throughout the nation and what judges are allowing to happen. All right, Jessica, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, the Republican drumbeat of election fraud has been relentless, and we've seen dozens of new restrictive voting laws enacted in the guise of protecting elections, but that's not nearly the whole story. So what is the reality here? Are we now seeing some of them struck down by judges? Is this going to continue? Are the courts a venue in which to defend voting rights? Well, they certainly should be a venue in which to defend voting rights. So no, I don't think that we're seeing anything close to a pattern yet because Judge Walker's opinion is the first judicial opinion to strike down portions of one of these restrictive voting laws that have been passed in the aftermath of the 2020 elections and the subsequent lie that keeps being spread that there's widespread voter fraud. Now, in this particular decision, Judge Walker does a couple of important things. First, he strikes down Florida's portions of Florida's law. But then he also says, I'm going to survey Florida's history of voting rights legislation. And I find that, in fact, Florida engaged in intentional discrimination. And based on at least two decades of intentional discrimination, what he says here is, I'm taking the unusual step of putting Florida under preclearance, which means that there's a portion of the Federal Voting Rights Act that is not often used. And it can allow federal judges to say, we think based on a frankly egregious history with respect to voting laws, that we just really don't trust you state or county in some cases, to implement laws on your own. So you're going to have to go ahead and check in with us, check in with us, meaning the court in this case, before you make additional changes. In this case, what are the three areas that are covered? Uh, The three areas that are covered deal with drop boxes, third-party voter registration organizations, 
and also with these line warming provisions. So Florida had tried to outlaw people from providing food and water to people who are standing in line to vote. And so with respect to changes in those three specific areas, what Judge Walker is saying here is, Florida, given your history, we just don't trust you. So if you want to make changes in those areas for the next 10 years, check in with me first. Now, this is a way of federal judges trying to do what the Voting Rights Act used to do before it was mostly gutted in 2013 in Shelby County, which is the Voting Rights Act said there are certain jurisdictions, counties, cities, states that are covered by the Voting Rights Act, meaning they have this, again, history of problematic voting legislation. And so they have to check in with the federal government before they make changes. That provision was gutted by the Supreme Court, but we still have this less used uh, bail-in preclearance standard. And that's what Walker said, yes, I'm using this. And so now I, as the judge, am the gatekeeper of Florida. If you want to make changes, check in with me first. And that, I know I spent some time talking about that. I know it sounds pretty in the weeds, but it actually is quite extraordinary that he decided to do that at all. All right, Jessica. So can you please tell us more about the background of this specific Florida law? I mean, there's a lot of these laws around the country. What is it about this particular law that drew fire from a federal judge? I'm glad that you emphasize this because I said you know, quickly, and he found intentional discrimination here. That's a big deal. So in a lot of cases, you might look at a piece of voting rights legislation and say, it's going to have a disproportionate impact on minority jurisdictions. But what he said here is that there's also a intentional discrimination at work here. And he said, almost a year ago, Florida enacted a law essentially making it, trying to make it harder for Black people to vote. And he said in his ruling, when the Florida legislature passes law after law disproportionately burning Black voters this court can no longer accept the effect is incidental, meaning it's not just that there's a disproportionate and a disparate impact on minority voters. It means that that's, in fact, the purpose here. Florida's law, among other things, again, limited the use of ballot drop boxes, placed new restrictions on organizations engaged in voter registration, and placed limits on, as I said, the so-called line warming activities, like providing food and water to people who are in line. And he has some language where he says, look, I'm looking at these provisions. I'm looking at what Florida has done in the past, and this is not an accident. All right. And since we're talking about Florida, Jessica, I think the more appropriate term would be line cooling. It can be pretty warm and soupy in Florida in the summertime. I've been there and can attest to that myself. But Jessica, as we've said, we've talked about this on this particular episode and on many, many other episodes of Passing Judgment. Republicans say that there is election fraud, but really, is there, at least appreciably? And in turn, does that mean that there is any legitimate explanation for this law and other laws like it elsewhere around the country? There really isn't. And therefore, I don't think that there is a legitimate explanation for this law. Now, there are portions of the law that Judge Walker said are permissible, that they are in fact okay. We're focused on the portions that are not, in his view, permissible. And look, let's be clear on what's happening here. Florida, like many other states, is really trying to choke off additional routes to allow people either to be eligible to vote, meaning to register to vote, 
or to exercise that right. So whenever we look at a situation where our elected representatives are trying to make it harder for us to vote, um, and specifically, typically harder for us to vote them out of office, we have to think, why are they throwing up these barriers for us? Why are they throwing up these barriers to allow themselves to keep power? And again, while Republicans may claim that this is about making sure that voting is more secure, there's no evidence of that. Again, there are certainly situations where we need to make sure that our elections are free of fraud, but these particular provisions don't get at that. And that's why Judge Walker's opinion here is so important, not just because of the remedy by placing Florida, again, under this clearance, but because he's saying this smacks of intentional discrimination against Black voters. Okay, Jessica, is this one of those saying the quiet parts out loud situations we've been increasingly seeing in the last six or so years? And can Florida, which is currently a red state, say that they were just trying to maximize GOP power, and which is just partisanship, and not to discriminate against Black people, not to cross that threshold? Well, that's exactly what they said. And to be sure, as Judge Walker concluded, the Florida Republican Party's goal here was to help its electoral chances. And because politics is a zero-sum game within a two-party system, to harm Democrats' chances. But the way they went about it, and this is often the case, is to make it harder for certain groups that are likely to vote for Democrats to vote. And in this case, namely, the certain group are Black voters. And we have this line here from Judge Walker. For the past 20 years, the majority in the Florida legislature has attacked the voting rights of its Black constituents. He further found later, in the past 20 years, Florida has repeatedly sought to make voting tougher for Black voters because of their propensity to favor Democratic candidates. So again, it matters here that he's specifically saying This is not just about discriminatory impact or effect. It's also about discriminatory intent. And luckily, at least in Judge Walker's courtroom, that's still not constitutional. Uh, We'll have to see what happens next. All right, Jessica, we'll see what happens next. As I've learned, I am sometimes afraid to ask this question, but what happens next in this case? So... I hate to put it this way, but I, I think I wrote in my column, you know, because Judge Walker's opinion appears to be so correctly reasoned and, it, again, says the quiet parts out loud where he tries to strike down this uh, GOP attempted power grab and says, you can't trample on minority voting rights this way. It seems doomed to be overturned. So Florida is going to appeal the decision to the 11th Circuit. That is a circuit that is decidedly conservative in its leaning. Uh, Former President Trump was effective in uh, nominating a number of judges to that circuit. And they are likely to come to an opposite conclusion. Then the case could go all the way to the Supreme Court. We've talked about how conservative this court is, particularly with respect to voting rights. Let's remember, I mentioned the 2013 decision in Shelby County. We now have a more conservative court than we did in 2013. So it's hard to imagine that this particular Supreme Court would uphold Judge Walker's ruling here. 
All right, Jessica, we've been watching this a long time, and I feel as if we've been watching the slow but increasingly faster erosion of democracy. And given that voting is a cornerstone of that concept, is there anything that can be done about this to staunch this? Yeah, I don't like my answer here, but it's an answer born out of this is the reality of where we are. I think, number one, there's an urgent need for Congress to pass federal voting rights protections. We've seen because we see state by state, states making it more difficult. Well, let's be honest, red states making it more difficult for people to exercise their right to vote, that we can't just leave this up to the states, that we do need a federal floor of protection when it comes to voting rights. And then after that, and this is the part that's harder for me to say because I don't love the solution, I think Congress should take the unusual step of saying that the voting rights legislation is not reviewable by the Supreme Court. And that's something called jurisdiction stripping, where you would specifically in the legislation strip the Supreme Court of the ability to review the law. That's very rare. It should be rare. There are plenty of downsides. I don't love this particular solution, but again, looking at the fact that Voting rights are the rights that protect all the other rights. They're the foundational rights. They're the rights that are the building block of our ability to have a representative system of government like we do. I think we might be there where we need to start using these nuclear options. So that's, Joe, where I land, which is let's pass the legislation and then let's prevent the Supreme Court at least from touching that legislation. All right, Jessica, and I know you've written about these things. Tell our smart and good-looking listeners where they can read these, <laughs> these, these writings. I have a number of columns on MSNBC this week about it, and uh, you can find out more there. And I'm doing some TikTok videos. You can find out about them there as well. Jessica is available on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me in those places as well as at joearmstrong.com slash day. On behalf of Jessica and myself, we'd like to thank everyone for listening and also would like to say none of this is an April Fool's joke. This is all reality. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you have a great day. Mm